1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Today, the idea that the Himalayas have the world's tallest summits by a large margin is entirely uncontroversial just about anyone can rattle off Mount Everest and K2 as the world's tallest and second tallest mountains respectively. But the idea that the Himalayas had the highest summits was originally quite controversial. Mountaineers claimed that peaks in that mountain range could not be taller than mountains in Europe or South America, like Chimborazo in Ecuador. Even when the data was certain, mountaineers would end up praising the aesthetic qualities of peaks outside the Himalayas, essentially giving the 19th century equivalent of, height isn't everything. That's merely one of the historical details from Lachlan Fleetwood's Science on the Roof of the World, Empire, and the Making of the Himalaya, which, t- which studies the first attempts to survey this mountain range. Fleetwood's book examines not just the expeditions themselves, but also how surveyors procured their equipment, how they handled altitude sickness, and the fossils they found, among many other details, using them to study the connection between knowledge, the frontier, and empire. Lachlan Fleetwood is a historian of science, empire, geography, and environment. He holds a PhD in history from Cambridge University and is currently a research fellow at University College Dublin. His first book, Science Learn on the Roof of the World, was published by Cambridge University Press in May 2022. He is currently developing a new project that examines climactic sciences and environmental determinism in imperial surveys of Central Asia and Mesopotamia in the long 19th century. Today, Lachlan and I talk about the Himalayas, how the first surveyor studied this mountain range, and why these early expeditions are important to how we understand the history of science. So, Lachlan, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian View Books podcast. I want to start by just setting the historical context. What's the period of time we're talking about with your book? What's the political status, geopolitical status of the Himalayan region at this point in time.
1: Uh, Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, A pleasure to be here. Um, So the book covers uh, the first half of the 19th century. And just to set the scene a little bit, in 1802, when the Prussian uh, polymath and scientist Alexander von Humboldt made his famous ascent of the volcano Chimborazo in South America, it was the highest mountain in the world, or at least he and many other European savants believed that it was. And it's only around 1820 that Dalagiri in the Himalaya is finally accepted as higher, not before some brief outrage among savants in Europe who doubted the measurements made by East India Company surveyors. Other mountains, including Nanda Devi and Kanchanchunga, then have brief turns in the spotlight before Everest is finally confirmed as supreme in 1856, which is the other bookend. Uh, for the book. So essentially Science on the Roof of the World then is the story of these intervening decades and the various scientific, imaginative, environmental and political remakings needed to fit the Himalaya into a new global scientific and imperial order and ultimately to confirm Everest as the world's highest mountain. So as this sort of uh, indicates, the status of the Himalaya within uh, European uh, geography, within European science uh, and imperial knowledge orders is quite limited in this uh, period. Uh, at the same time, uh, in terms of its geopolitical context, it's emerging as a particularly important uh, imperial frontier. And so as much as for sort of scientific edification, uh, the uh, surveyors and naturalists that go into the mountains in the first half of the 19th century are, are motivated by growing fears about a lack of information about what is becoming the key kind of northern frontier of the east india Company's expanding territory in india And this is coupled then with mounting concerns about the relative permeability uh, rather than impenetrability of the range. So this idea that the mountains uh, provide this natural barrier, uh, the closer the look, the more they find paths that have been used by migrants, traders and pilgrims for millennia to pass through. So it's less of a reassuring natural barrier uh, than they initially assumed and more of a threatening blank space at the edges of uh, an increasingly kind of... uh, 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 expansionist British Empire in in South Asia. When they go into the mountains though, uh, East India Company agents often have much more limited authority than they would say in Bengal, which is well established in Imperial territory. Uh, So in terms of the wider uh, uh, territory, European naturalists are almost entirely um, blocked from entering Tibet across the period of this study, much to their kind of ongoing irritation. They also have to deal with the ongoing uh, autonomy of powerful rulers and states like Ranjit Singh in the Punjab, uh, as well as the ongoing resistance of the kingdom of Nepal, which uh, all come together to circumscribe uh, surveyors' ambitions to kind of measure the heights and to uh, map the natural history of the mountains. And this, uh, in the case of Nepal, this opposition continues even after important events like the anglo gurkha War of 1814-16, which ostensibly a British victory. Um, The Gurkhas still maintain considerable authority. There's a British resident in Kathmandu, but they can't go beyond the Kathmandu Valley. The Anglo-Gurka War, though, is significant in that it may, leads to the uh, British acquisition of Kumaon and Garwal uh, to the west of Nepal. Uh, and what this does is opens up a much wider cross-section of the mountains than naturalists had access to previously, as well as establishes a uh, new frontier with the Qing Empire. So as well as these checks then by uh, regional political entities, um, increasing imperial ambitions in the subcontinent also is uh, motivated by these broader concerns, particularly about uh, what the Chinese are doing to the north of the Himalaya, what the Russians are doing to the northwest. And for example, uh, these efforts to untangle the Himalayan heights and passes are intimately linked with the kind of so-called great game with fears about Russian aspirations for India. An idea that has, of course, seen considerable uh, revision in recent uh, decades, um, but one which nevertheless motivates uh, attempts to fill in some of the blanks in uh, European imperial maps.
0: So you know, one of the historical details in your book that really jumped out at me at reading it was this. Controversy about whether or not the Himalayas were the world's tallest mountains. There seems to have been a real debate amongst people, and then even when it was confirmed that the Himalayas were the world's tallest mountains, a lot of mountaineers seemed weirdly. It was a lot of a lot of comments like, "Well, height doesn't really matter." I wonder if you might get into this 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 controversy about whether or not the Himalayas really were kind of the tallest mountains on Earth.
1: Sure. Um, I think uh, one of the kind of key uh, aspects of this is that the several main measured methods used to measure mountains in the 19th century, uh, whether that is from a distance using theodolites, using geometrical methods, or taking new sorts of portable instruments into the mountains had kind of notable limits. But if we take a step back, the wider problem is actually imaginative. And this uh, period, and in fact the story that I'm trying to tell in the book, is about a wider shift to this idea that we take for granted today, which is that altitude in general, or altitude above sea level in particular, is the category that means some mountains should matter uh, more than others. So we take it for granted now that Everest is the third pole, the pinnacle of the world. We see crowds lining up every year to climb it as a result. Uh, But it's actually very hard to know that Everest is the highest mountain without precise instrumental measurements. Um, and that is even assuming that uh, that is something that you're interested in. So it's quite it's quite telling that uh, Chimborazo was believed to be the highest mountain in the world in, uh, from the perspective of European science around 1800. In the 18th century, the peak of Tenerife or Tide in the Canary Islands was considered by some as a good candidate. Um, and that's partly because it has a high prominence. So it looks, uh, it, it rises out of the ocean. And so it's sort of separate uh, from other mountains around. And so it looks tall. Even more widely, though, from the perspective of many in the kind of early modern period and indeed much of human history, the height of a mountain isn't something that's necessarily considered important. So the most um, significant mountains were based on other factors. It might be aesthetics, it might be location, it might be association with particular historical or religious events. uh, And these all matter in assigning uh, more, in assigning significance to mountains. So in Europe, that might be Vesuvius, it might be Ararat. In South Asia... Um, mountains like Kailash, uh, the center or the the origin of the kind of life-giving rivers of the subcontinent, still an important place of pilgrimage, or the cosmic kind of Meru, the center of the universe in sort of Jain Hindu-Buddhist cosmologies, are more significant than kind of obscure mountains like Everest or K2, uh, which just happen to be geographically the highest. So Gaining momentum in the sort of 18th century then, reaching the Himalayan 1800s, uh, there is an increasing attempt to map and to measure mountains according uh, to their height, but that does uh, require this sort of agreement that it is a factor that should make, um, or that should be used as a factor in mountains identity or, or their status um, in comparison to others. So that's sort of one reason why the uh, initial story or the initial reports coming in from India that the Himalaya, are uh, might be higher, were controversial. Another key one is the social status of the surveyors that were making the measurements. So rather than sort of gentlemanly scientists like Alexander von Humboldt or the most famous uh, naturalist in the 19th century, Charles Darwin, these are employees of the East India Company, their army officers, their surgeons, uh, who are kind of grafting their science onto other careers or who are seconded by the company to go in and make the surveys in the mountains. And what uh, that does is it makes it slightly harder for them to uh, establish their credibility of the measurements they're making, particularly when they're using these instruments, which have sort of notable uh, limitations um, and sort of doubts about their reliability. To give you one example, uh, there was a, a Bengal infantry officer named James Herbert uh, who describes uh, to his superiors uh, a letter he writes to cal- uh, to, to his uh chief in in the India Company office in 1819, he says, uh, I would first observe uh, that the survey involves the principal determination um, of the heights of the Himalaya, which are uh, now acknowledged to be the highest range of mountains in the world by all except those in Europe who think science is confined there and that it's impossible for an officer in the company service to measure the height of a mountain. So unlike, for example, the Andes, whose measurements are underwritten by the great travelling naturalist Alexander von Humboldt, the Himalaya are largely measured by this eclectic cast of uh, professional army officers and surgeons uh, who can't kind of draw on gentlemanly credibility in the same way uh, that those of the aristocratic class um, can. And so this sort of uh, debate then is a a wider one in the history of science about sort of professionalisation and and the move away from from amateur science.
0: Yeah, you know, it's like the the mountaineers seem to be very like when when it when it's finally determined that the himalayas are the tallest mountains in the world the mountaineers are almost like well you know the Chimbazaro is prettier or something to that effect
1: yeah, absolutely. Uh, the aesthetics comes into it, and I think Humboldt sort of chagrined slightly by uh, the loss of of Chimborazo does say that you know it, 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 it's more um, it's more appealing. Victor Jacquemont, some other travellers say, well, the Alps are more aesthetically pleasing. The, the Himalaya are too big, and there's almost the, un, the grandeur is unapproachable. The scale is too large to to sort of um, to to sort of fit into some sublime or romantic ideas of what a mountain. Uh, should should look like. And actually, the way that the mountains um, didn't match expectations of the Alps and the Andes is kind of a, a really important part of this story and also part of the reason why it was initially controversial that they might be higher in some circles. Um, and so the naturalists and surveyors that go into the mountains are constantly comparing what they know from Humboldt's writings, from other information about the alps uh, but in the himalaya some of these comparisons are sort of contradictory um, and they don't necessarily match up on what is expected uh, one key example would be the line of perpetual snow which is the the, the line um, where snow exists all year round without melting so based on calculations of latitude and altitude it's expected it would be much lower in the himalaya than it actually was uh, to give an example, uh, an East India Company surgeon, uh, James Girard, writes to a fellow um, surveyor, I came across a village at a height of 14,700 feet. Are you not surprised that human beings could exist at such an elevation? Uh, he says, men, animals and vegetable productions succeed better here than in the valley below, all thriving profusely in a zone that contracts and terminates every trace of plants in the Andes under the equator. So he's he's paying attention to the upper limits of cultivation, obviously an important um, factor for imperial uh, interests, but he's also comparing to what he knows about other mountain ranges and showing that these are actually contradictory and surprising. Uh, and so in terms of measuring the mountains, sometimes surveyors would send back a measurement from 16,000 feet saying that that's, that's where they are, but that there's no snow. And then there was doubts because it was sort of based on established theories. It was was thought that it was impossible that you wouldn't have snow at 16,000 feet in the mountains. So um, these kind of contradictory global comparisons are a key kind of part of the story uh, of how um, it takes uh, a little bit of time for the himalayas to be accepted as as the highest in the world
0: we are spending a lot of time on this topic and I do want to ask more questions about other topics in the book but I guess one more question on this point is how how did they measure the height of the Himalayas at this point in time you know I feel like now it seems like we kind of take the fact that we can get measurements accurately for anything for granted, Um, but how exactly did people measure the height of mountains during the first half of the 19th century?
1: Yeah, so initially um, they were only able to measure from a distance, uh, and that continued to be... um, Part of the case uh, as the sort of political complications we talked about earlier and limits on access to Nepal and Tibet. Uh, but the earliest measurements were made uh, from quite a distance away, sometimes more than 100 miles, using theodolites to uh, measure angles looking up to the mountains, uh, and then using various geometrical and trigonometrical formulas to calculate the heights. This had a number of doubts about it in that um, there was considerable unknowns about refraction, so the way that light bends through the atmosphere. So it was unknown whether or not these measurements were actually accurate or not. What that meant is they had to go into the mountains um, to make measurements with new types of portable instruments, many of which were developed in the 18th century uh, and then were applied to the Himalaya, to other parts of uh, the world more widely in the 19th century, one of which was a mountain barometer, which measures altitude by uh the uh, by air pressure mountain barometers had a kind of number of issues uh one of which was um, that they were very fragile and so they sort of in the book i detail some of the many and sort of uh farcical ways in which these instruments were, were frequently broken uh, in the mountains other instruments were uh, tried to sort of compensate for this um, using boiling point thermometers so measuring altitude by the way that the temperature, uh, the boiling point of water drops as you rise uh, higher, uh, were used, although this was sort of an approximative method that wouldn't get to the kind of level of precision that scientists wanted. Uh, This then led to new types of instruments being developed, uh, especially um, for measuring what were uh, slowly becoming understood as the highest mountains in the world. But this led to kind of uh, other issues in terms of... um, instruments being designed in London or in Europe by savants or instrument makers that had kind of no understanding of the conditions and the environment in India, as well as the sheer uh, previously unprecedented and unimaginable scale of the mountains. Uh, An example of that would be a a thermometrical barometer, which is a type of boiling point thermometer, which is uh, designed by uh, the Reverend Francis Hyde Willaston. And this was designed especially to measure altitude uh, and he takes it to Mount Snowdon in Wales to test the instrument and to create a uh, set of conversion tables. However, the instrument reaches India and uh, surveyors uh, immediately complain that these uh, conversion tables are completely inadequate, uh, reflecting the kind of ongoing problems then to to sort of... uh, understand the level at which um they needed to operate in the himalaya so the mercury falls completely below the thermometer they have to kind of inscribe new marks into the instrument um and one of the uh one of the naturalists for example james princep records in a kind of pithy critique of 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 what's happening in the metropole versus those who are actually practicing science in the mountains he says well wollaston gave us this uh set of conversion tables but the range only extends to an altitude of 5,405 feet which is evidently quite insufficient for the traveler in India who may ascend to 18,000 feet or the height of Mont Blanc and still see uh, Snowden's towering above his head
0: so you know one thing I we've covered a couple books on Himalayan expeditions obviously those were kind of the early 20th centuries but the amount of I'm going to use the word hassle to actually get to the Himalayas, both in terms of the distance, in terms of, you know, traipsing that terrain, but also the politics, you know, negotiating with um, negotiating with the rules in Nepal to actually or Tibet to actually get access to these mountains. Um, You know, what were some of the things that exorcists had to do, surveyors had to do to actually get to these mountains?
1: Sure. Um, I'm going to interpret this uh, question as a way that really allows me to talk about what is the other or one of the other key through lines um, through the book. And that is the extent to which all of the European science, geography, mapping, exploration of the Himalaya is dependent on a variety of Himalayan people who serve as brokers, as guides, as porters and translators uh, on the various expeditions. And so one of the key things I'm really trying to do in the book is show... The overwhelming extent to which measuring and mapping the mountains depends on existing local routes on indigenous expertise on uh local labor uh, and so even while they're ostensibly exploring uh the mountains these surveyors are almost never stepping off paths that haven't already existed for millennia prior to their scientific interest and so as is really true in himalayan mountaineering and trekking today foreign travelers wouldn't have gotten very far or very high in the mountains if they haven't been able to rely on Himalayan people, so especially um, Botias, Waki, Lepcha, Tatar, as the kind of various colonial ethnographies would have it, um, would to various groups of people then to uh, identify the correct routes, to transport their supplies, to share or sometimes assume the kind of risks of mountain travel. Uh, and so in the book, I'm really trying to foreground this eclectic cast of brokers, of guides, intermediaries and translators that are central to all of this uh to the, to the story of, of, of understanding the Himalaya as the highest mountains in the world. So I'll give you one example of these kind of key, um, brokers who were central to the way that these surveyors and naturalists were able to travel, to operate to practice science in the mountains. Um, and that would be Patti Ram, who is a boatier trader uh, from Sundum. Uh, he Supplied numerous surveying um, expeditions, later fossil hunting expeditions, and he pre- performed all sorts of services for these expeditions, including pointing out the correct routes, securing them uh, and the correct number of carriers. He even wrote letters sort of providing them with uh, ways to sort of interceding kind of local frontier politics uh, or to gain kind of supplies uh, in the kind of uh, limited, uh, in the kind of, in the high mountains. Um, and he's kind of one of the more uh, visible brokers because he did supply numerous of these expeditions across the first half of the 19th century. Uh, but more widely, um, and something in the book which I'm really, uh, which I focus on, is the ways that the recovery of the roles of these various Himalayan peoples, exploration of science is quite challenging in practical terms. Um, individual intermediaries uh, or, or brokers, guides, are often rendered invisible. So they become kind of ghosts in the narrative and science in the archive. Um, and so uh, writing then about these South Asian actors and their kind of key roles in the uh, scientific uh, appropriation and also the, the many ways they often resisted these imperial attempts to appropriate uh the uh, Himalayan uh, environments uh, requires various questions about how we read these colonial documents, how we read colonial archives uh, against the grain, for example, to kind of, or how we might use different instruments that show how they were redesigned to be more rugged for Himalayan conditions or the images that show the sheer extent to which these expeditions required on large parties to operate in the mountains in order to um, recover kind of the various roles that, that the European surveyors and naturalists didn't necessarily want to uh, acknowledge the extent to which they depended on in, in all of their uh, operations uh, in, in the mountains. This could uh, also lead to uh, problems, though, and particularly, uh, as we talked about earlier, in the uh, political limits on access to the mountains uh, and the issue of frontiers, it often meant that uh, surveyors and naturalists would have to... uh, tap into pre-existing networks. So one example would be the lightning bones, which are fossilized bones of large animals that were seen by European scientists as important in some questions about, for example, how the mountains had been raised uh, to their present elevation, but which were already used as ritual objects. Uh, And so they would then uh, try and buy these at bazaars or they would approach boatier traders to try and Uh, find these lightning bones from uh, beyond the frontier in Tibet, parts of the mountains that they themselves couldn't access uh, in the 19th century. Uh, But of course, that has issues in that uh, without being kind of seen in situ, without being attached to other various observations about altitude uh, or uh, the context in which they're found, they only have a kind of limited value in Advancing questions in, 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 um, in terms of European geology, in terms of the, like the age or the way that the mountains uh, rose out of the Tethys Sea. Uh, but it's also an indication then of the various uh, ways more widely that uh, the natural historical exploration, the mapping of the mountains is circumscribed by these wider political realities and limits uh, on European access.
0: So I want to maybe drill down into one aspect of these expeditions, which is altitude sickness. Um, again, I know from reading other books on this topic, other books on Himalayan expeditions, again, kind of happening a century later, that that they're always kind of grappling with how best to kind of overcome altitude sickness. But in these early days, you know, how do these expeditions kind of grapple with and understand? I guess the problems of being so high up, the problems that come with altitude sickness and how do they see it in themselves and the people they worked with on their expeditions?
1: Yeah, the story of altitude sickness is a uh, really interesting one, particularly in the first uh, half of the 19th century. And I talk about this, particularly in the second chapter of the book on suffering bodies. Uh, And so altitude affects the body and it affects the mind in quite unusual ways. The higher up one climbs, the more apparent uh, these effects become, but the cause is always invisible. And in fact, in the early 19th century, the particular physiological effects, um, sort of nausea or uh, sort of loss of appetite, headaches, uh, the particular effects of altitude sickness weren't always understood as a kind of discrete medical phenomenon. So they weren't always separated out from the other ways that you might suffer climbing a mountain, so from fatigue, from cold, for example. Uh, and so many actually doubted that altitude sickness was even a particular medical phenomena. Uh, and moreover, the symptoms were always felt extremely unevenly, um, and, and that's also true today. We could take yourself, uh, me, the listeners of the podcast, we place us all onto a, a mountain and you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict based on you know fitness or age or, or other factors who might do better or worse. And what that uh, meant was that it was very difficult to work out uh, altitude sickness in the early 19th century, going back to this surgeon, James Stride, who I talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, he talks about how we can't hesitate to uh, refer to the primary and immediate agent being the thinness of the air, more properly diminished pressure, the effects are so capricious and irregular to be at variance with the idea of the uh, of a constant cause. So he correctly knows that it's the thinness of the air that's causing some of the problems with the body, which is an advance then on the later 18th century and 19th century, where this isn't always recognized. But he's finding it very hard to kind of reconcile this with the extreme inconsistency with which symptoms are experienced. And in the context of Himalayan exploration, these inconsistencies are really interesting and kind of central to the story. Uh, and that's because, as I mentioned, the travelers who go into the high mountains rarely, that is essentially never, do so alone. And so these European explorers, surveyors, surgeons are, are constantly forced to compare their suffering, to compare their bodily performances uh, against those of their Boetier, Tata, Lepshire guides and porters um, who they're always depending on in the mountains. And this could then exaggerate some kind of existing tensions within the party. So it, it might risk uh, inverting expected hierarchies around race or around gender uh, and bodily performance. So um, in the chapter of the book, I talk about some of the ways that the European travelers responded by sort of developing tropes to sort of a, a t- attempt to sort of reassert their assumed superiority in terms of, um, of sort of uh, imperial masculinity. Uh, but uh or the ways that they kind of try to describe their various performances in in sort of self-serving ways and the kind of often unconvincing attempts at which they uh, attempt to show that they uh, performed as well or better than their kind of indigenous um, companions, even though, as we know today, many of the people, uh, high altitude populations are actually better adapted to, to living. Um, in these environments. Um, One example of this kind of of the ways that the altitude leads to these sort of sometimes farcical performances would be uh, James Girard with his brother Alexander at one point climbing in the mountains and they describe how they have to stop every minute to use the thermometer to take a measurement uh, which is actually has nothing to do with science it's just that they couldn't walk any faster and so they're trying to save face in front of their guides uh, by pretending to do science in order to get their breath back and so this is a kind of interesting example of how they might use inconsistency around altitude or how um, their agency of some of these travelers could be limited in the mountains um, but that's it's not only the europeans that might uh, do uh, use the kind of uncertainties around whether altitude sickness is a real uh, phenomenon or whether or not um, certain people might experience it more than others. And in the chapter, I also talk about how guides and porters might kind of use uncertainty to resist what must've been very unpleasant labor conditions uh, or at times even to kind of redirect expeditions away from what they know are particularly sort of difficult or dangerous uh, routes by uh, discussing the extent to which it was known to cause sickness um, more than more than some other um, parts of the mountains. In terms of the kind of wider story that I'm telling the book in terms of global comparison, how the Himalaya had to be worked out um, and fit into this new environmental order, the way altitude sickness was experienced in the Himalaya also had some interesting contradictions with the Alps. As one example, the French naturalist and traveler, Victor Jacquemont, uh, who visited in the 1820s and 1830s, he repeatedly claims not to have felt the same symptoms of altitude sickness uh, that he himself had felt uh at lower elevations in the Alps. Uh, and at the time, he was actually one of the few travelers who had actually visited both and written about it. So it did give him some authority. And so you talk about uh, later that the effect, he says, if it depends solely on the rarefaction of the atmosphere, it should be the same at the same height in all regions of the globe. Um, but to him, it appears not to be. Um, so later travellers point out that if you're climbing in the Alps, kind of you might go quite quickly to altitude. So from Chamonix, for example, straight to in a day up to a high altitude, whereas in the Himalaya, the imperial context uh, meant longer approaches through the foothills, which might mean that you uh, would be better acclimatised. And that might explain some of the differences in symptoms people were reporting in the Alps, uh, the Andes or the Himalaya. Uh, but it's also a reminder then uh, the extent to which these kind of or the way that these uh, phenomena like altitude sickness as was sort of had to be understood as 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 universal or associated with particular environments around the world the extent to which that process was sort of uneven uh, in terms of being being worked out
0: so i want to close off our conversation by you know talking about the things you discuss in your book in the context of our understanding of the history of science you know what makes these expeditions to the himalayas these scientific expeditions these surveying expeditions so important to i guess first the history of science but also the way we understand the history of science
1: sure i uh, so one of the kind of major through line arguments of the book is the value of geographical features as scales for histories that might transcend some of the framings we've used in the past. So instead of writing a history of India, instead of using area studies, framings, which we might be familiar with like South Asia or Southeast Asia, how actually writing a history of the Himalaya might disrupt some of that kind of, and allow for new uh, sort of transnational histories of science and empire. And here I'm building on the way that people have written histories of oceans, for example, or islands and beaches. There's two other key ways, I think, that the Himalaya can help us to understand the history of science in the 19th century, as well as uh, some of the ways that we think about science now. The first is how the Himalaya allow us to think about the rise of the globe or the global itself as a scale for science uh, and the ways that it was developed as a particularly powerful tool of empire in the 19th century. So in the book, I sort of show the way that... The development of ideas of needing to understand the height or fossils, glaciers, uh, plants on a scale that's not only two-dimensional, but also three-dimensional, in other words, to examine... Um, the idea of the rise of the vertical globe, which is uh, as I I talk about in the book, Um, but to show how these sciences are inherently both sciences of the globe, or at least the parts of the globe above sea level, but also global sciences in their practice. So to show uh, a material dimension to that global in the way that uh, these mapping projects required the movement of enormous quantities of things, of scientific specimens, of drawings of people around the world, Um, But also, as I uh, talked about, in terms of the way that these uh, naturalists and surveyors would understand and position their science um, on a global scale, and particularly uh, focus on the way that uh, the Himalaya were read as aberrations, were seen as uh, or were understood through the lens of, of existing scientific ideas of the Alps and the Andes. In particular, I want to show that in the Himalaya, this is far from a story of the seamless accumulation of knowledge. Um, And so it's increasingly uh, clear that uh, certain scientific phenomena, whether it's altitude physiology or the line of perpetual snow, are encountered glaciers as well, are encountered all around the world. Um, The inconsistencies show that it could initially lead to more uh, uncertainty. And this sort of reflects something that, Global historians, historians of science, have become quite interested in in the way that we are maybe better now at telling things, the stories of things that do move, uh, but that we do need to spend time also thinking about disconnections, moments when these networks break down, when specimens are lost, uh, when knowledge is forgotten, and ultimately to, to show the sort of incomplete, contested, uneven character of many of these ostensibly global uh, norms that are kind of imposed on geographical categories as large as mountains in the 19th century. And I think this is particularly important to focus on the ways that knowledge was made in the mountains, because we see that in remaking the Himalaya as sort of commensurable on this global, ostensibly universal scale, it, it involved erasing not only various scientific uncertainties, but also the many and varied ways that Himalayan peoples assist and resist uh the appropriation of knowledge um, and the extent to which the naturalists and surveyors depend on their labour and expertise uh, is often or does need to be erased In once this information is produced or reproduced then in European atlases in wider theories of mountains. So really um, what I'm trying to show is that imagining and representing uh, the world in three dimensions with heights uh, precisely quantified by new instruments also has longer term implications for the political and economic position of mountain peoples, mountain environments in South Asia. uh, And that the way that these new or that developing the global as a scale for science ultimately does a particularly kind of insidious kind of imperial work and paves the way for appropriating the mountains into this ostensibly universal framework, um, one that kind of still uh, frames our geographical imaginations and that we often take for granted today. There's one other kind of key aspect that I would say um, more widely in terms of how the Himalaya can help us to understand the history of science, uh, and that is we still have a tendency to focus on what we might think of as great man histories of science, um, almost always men, um, and particularly the biographies of savant figures. So... um, Charles Darwin being the most obvious example, but Humboldt as well in recent years has been the subject of numerous uh, studies. And so I'm especially interested in this book in showing how, uh, in order to understand the geopolitic, geopolitics, to understand the scientific remaking, to understand the environmental categories that are imposed in the Himalayas in the 19th century, we need to look much more widely at these networks and to move away from this idea of a lone genius as responsible for scientific innovation, something which is still kind of a pervasive idea today. Um, And so really, I I wanna show that studying science in the mountains from the mountains helps us to reveal this wider cast of actors involved in European science, exploration and geography uh, in the 19th century. And this applies not only to the Himalaya, uh, but also more widely. So whether it's East India Company officers and surgeons or non-European actors like Pari Ram uh, or the various Boatier guides, uh, we can see that this wider uh, group of individuals are essential to the functioning of global science and ultimately to fitting the Himalaya into a kind of new environmental uh, an imperial order, even if, as that order is itself in the making, uh, into accounting for uh, a three-dimensional world that would eventually establish Mount Everest as this kind of important um, feature of our planet.
0: So I think that's a great place to end an interview with Lachlan Fleetwood, author of Science on the Roof of the World, Empire, and the Remaking of the Himalaya. Lachlan, I actually have two final questions for you. The first is, uh, where can people find your work and the second is, what's next for you?
1: Thanks, Nicholas. Uh, so the book is available now. It was published in May uh, by Cambridge University Press. It's available from CUP. It's available um, books uh, online booksellers uh, around the world. It is, and this is one of the realities of uh, academic publishing, unfortunately uh, only available at the moment in quite uh, an expensive uh, hardcover edition. Um, you can get a discount of 20% with the code uh, SRW. 2022, um, or, and that this would also be uh, an equally um, appropriate wait, uh, at 12 months or so, there will be a paperback edition, which will be much more affordable and, and hopefully um, can be uh, accessed much more widely. Some people also have institutional access via sort of digital versions and Cambridge uh, Core. Uh, if you have encounter any trouble, just send me an email, particularly if you read it, I'm happy to answer any questions about that. The, uh what's next? Um, so this actually requires just briefly uh, looking at what is actually a significant irony in the title of the book. So the title is Science on the Roof of the World, um, but actually the roof of the world is not or was originally not associated with the Himalaya at all. In fact, it is usually associated with the Pamir Mountains in Central Asia. Uh, and it is a term that was, in fact, uh, translated from Bamaitanaya Persian, or there are various uh, Waki or Tajik uh, versions as well. Uh, and it's then sort of appropriated by European imperial surveyors, applied more widely in the 19th century to South Asia, to uh, the Himalaya uh more widely, and then in the early 20th century, particularly to Tibet. And so this kind of original, regionally specific uh, association with the Pamir, not the Himalaya at all, is in fact lost at all, uh, lost entirely. So the title of the book is quite ironic. And what I'm actually doing now is is sort of looking at the real roof of the world, looking at the Pamir, um, and I'm developing a new project, which is on the history of climate sciences, uh, environmental determinism in Central Asia, and particularly the way that Surveys that naturalists tried to measure and define the limits of habitability or uninhabitability through the arid lines and snow lines of uh, Central Asia in the long 19th century. Uh, and ultimately, the kind of rationale for the project is the way that we now see astronomers and billionaires searching the universe um, for new habitable planets in an age of climate crisis and thinking about how we also need to historicize the limits or the ways that environmental stability and change have been understood on this one. Um, so this is designed as a book project. It's something that I'll be uh, working on in uh, a new position I'll be taking up at the LMU uh, later in the year. Uh, but I'm also thinking about a uh, more writing a, a more public facing book um, as well, and that would be for a trade rather than university press. and I do really think there's a need for new histories of science, geography, and empire that center a much wider cast of uh, characters and uh, historical actors than is usually the case. So I'm considering a book then on the kind of many roles of brokers and guides in the making and remaking of imperial geography um, across the Arid and Upland regions of South and Central Asia.
0: Well, I look forward to learning more about that when the time comes. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiabookBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews, plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network and newbooksnetwork.com. Um, the Airbnb Podcast is on all fair podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends. If you want to continue to support us writing in, supporting, interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Ramon Pacheco Pardo, author of Shrimp to Whale, South Korea from the Forgotten War to K-pop. But before then, thank you so much, Lachlan, for joining me today.
1: Thanks, Nicholas. It was a real pleasure to be here.